Hello and welcome to the Final Whistle podcast. My name is Harry McBain and today I'm delighted to say I've got a brilliant interview set up for you. I'm joined by former Premier League and international referee Keith Hackett. Thank you for joining me today, Keith. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. Delighted. A pleasure to be on your show. Thank you very much. And I think the, the best way we can start off the interview is by going right to the beginning of your career. How did you get into refereeing professionally and what was it that made you want to do that as your job? Well, that's a pretty uh, long answer. I'll try and shorten it. I started in 1960. I played grassroots football. And at the time, the county FA wanted to take the captain of each team and just give them an introduction to the laws of the game. Um, after a period of about three weeks um, and a number of sort of evenings spent learning the laws, they decided to examine us. I passed the test with no intentions of refereeing. Um, a couple of weeks later, I received a phone call from the county FA secretary who said, uh, Mr. Hackett, uh, you're refereeing uh, Hillsborough Boys Clubs versus Sheffield United Juniors, intake school. I put the phone down. Uh, I didn't even know what the kickoff time was. Uh, I went to that game and enjoyed it so much. Uh, <clears throat> I came off and then spent 12 years at grassroots level in and around Sheffield, uh, which of course is the home of football. This is where football started. Um, and then progressed onto the Yorkshire League as a referee. The Northern Premier League was formed. It was a new competition. So I was invited to become an assistant linesman then. Uh, and then uh, referee a couple of years later, I went on very quickly to referee the, the final of that competition. Um, and in my last season, I was promoted to the Football League line. And I was around about 1972, so 12 years at grassroots level. Um, then <clears throat> a pretty rapid rise um, onto the list uh, of the middle. They used to operate a supplementary list then where you, you refereed about eight or nine games. I think they were giving you a, a feel and a test as to whether you were capable. Um, I then became a, a football league referee around about 70, I don't know, four, five. And, uh, and then went on from there. So that career on the football league, obviously then the Premier League was formed. Um, I was 48. I was ready to retire when the Premier League was formed, but the Premier League asked uh, a few referees to stay on. So I stayed on a couple of years um, and watched the, if you like, the introduction of the Premier League and, and how we see it now. Yeah. Um, so long career. I was a, a FIFA international referee, promoted in 81, through for 10 years. So the highlights of my career are uh, always enjoying refereeing at grassroots level. Even when I was a, a Premier League referee or an international referee, I would still referee at grassroots level. So, you know, I might have a midweek game. I can remember having Italy-Germany uh, in an international game. And on the Saturday, I'd got no game and finished up refereeing two pub teams. Um, so it, I think refereeing is a bit of a disease. For me, it is. 
Um, and uh, of course, we were never professional. We, we operated as amateurs in a professional game. Uh, you know, I, I, re I refereed the cup final, the 100th cup final between Manchester City and uh, uh, Tottenham Hotspur. And um, I can remember before the kickoff being asked by uh, an FA guy, right, Mr. Hackett, you've got a choice, £35 match fee or uh, a medal. You didn't get both. Uh, <laughs> Which, when you consider this was a, I think I think this was the first million pounds taken on a gate in England in this particular game. So um, I got both because the game went to a replay, and I, I refereed the match on a Thursday night. So they found fit that they didn't give me two medals; they gave me one uh, and the fee. So yeah, definitely one on that one then. Mm. And if you didn't get both of them. Um, so refereeing is obviously a very difficult job and we've seen modern day refs can get quite a lot of stick by not just fans and managers, but also from players if they don't agree with a decision. When, when you were refereeing, was there a particular player you found hard to control or referee? Maybe because of a character or an ego, maybe? I, I think that there, there, were, there were different personalities and you had to, as modern referees have to do, they have to, you know, you might have one player who's got a reputation, but on the day that you referee him, he's perfectly okay. Then that same player might cause you problems at another time. So, uh, you know, as, as young referees now, they need to prepare. They, they, they need to understand the, the game in front of them, the tactics that might be employed, and the players that might be involved. And there's a, there's a myriad of ways in which you can actually pacify a player, which is in effect is good management. You know, I encourage referees to have a stepped approach, the quiet word, run alongside, you know, um, just say, hey, you're coming into focus. You don't have to threaten. And then the more public rebuke of bringing a player across with the captain and, and sort of saying, look, uh, I now want uh, an improvement. You don't say, oh, the next time you're going to do that, it's a yellow card. The next time you're going to do that, it's a red card, because that closes off your options as a referee. So it's much better to say, look, I want an improvement from your player, if you're speaking to the captain, the players alongside you. And that way you hope to actually uh, diminish. But uh, within the context of refereeing, and I don't want to deviate too much away from the, 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 what you what you're going to ask me, but you know that I do lecture on various aspects of refereeing, and and part of communication might surprise you that 55% of what you say um, is transmitted verbally in a much better, not verbally, but uh, through body language. Yeah. So 55% through body language, it's only about seven eight percent through verbal. So you can see how important it is how you approach the player, palms down, how you talk to a player when you have to speak to him, body language with the use of the eyes, shape of the body, et cetera, can actually reduce tension. Um, players, um, I think many people will remember Vinnie Jones uh, as being allegedly hard man. I, I thought much the opposite. Uh, there were some players who you thought were great. I mean, look, there were players who had a different approach and you got to use 
got to know them. My favourite player was Kenny Dalglish. The player who, if you like, had a go at me more often than not was Kenny Dalglish. And, and it wasn't derogatory, it wasn't threatening. It was just this sheer will to win uh, 100% through the 90 minutes. And therefore, I was regarding him as a challenge, but I also watched him with great skills score some fantastic goals. That's really, that's really cool. Um, if, as well as players um, giving you maybe a hard time, and I said before in the last question about fans giving it as well, what stadium would you say you refed in that you maybe found the most hostile or had the greatest atmosphere? I suppose the one that can, could have been more, more hostile was uh, Azteca Stadium in Mexico City. 120,000 spectators, um, all, all Mexican, <laughs> and uh, really can make a, a huge noise. I've always had this attitude that one of the things that referees learn very quickly is that you feed off a crowd. So if there, you know, when you're in the local parks, you've probably got one man and his dog as a spectator. Um, and sometimes those words from that individual, when you're a, when you're, you know, a new referee, uh, can be can break your concentration. So I say to young referees. It doesn't matter who's spectating out on the field of play. Take this attitude without being seen to be arrogant. Remember that you're the person that knows the laws of the game better than most. And therefore, in that sense, the crowd for me was an adrenaline. It was a, it was a driver. The bigger, the more hostile crowd, the concentration had to be more fixed. Uh, you can't go stargazing around a place you just have a job to do concentrate on that and it enables you this you know i'm sure sports psychologists have words for it but you just switch off from the spectators and concentrate on the game yeah and over your career you've managed to referee some very high level games obviously the 1981 fa cup final also at european championships what for you when you look back is the career highlight of going you know what i'm really proud that i've done that um, I think there are many. Uh, I can look back uh, with, with, with great gratitude that I was given that opportunity. Uh, you know, a, a normal lad from Sheffield, worked hard, uh, had, had the difficulties of um, the mix between um, work and what I considered to be a hobby, because that's what it was, refereeing. Uh, but professional in our approach. I lost two jobs because of refereeing. I had to give up. So, so in that sense, I think it's a lot, a lot about um, the enjoyment that you get and get from the game and, um, you know, how you can actually feed off them. So the highlights, uh, walking out at the Olympic Stadium in Seoul in Korea to referee a semi-final, West Germany versus uh, Brazil. Uh, refereeing an, an unknown game really in, in uh, Gdansk in Poland, when the shipyard gates, the, there was the wall up then, the Eastern Bloc. And going there where no British journalists were allowed, I met what the guy who was in charge of Solidarity, by chance, 
he became the president of the country. So Gdansk versus Juventus. Refereeing Juventus in Milan uh, and spending a morning at, at, the, at La Scala, the opera house. I'm not, a, I'm not an opera buff, <laughs> but the, the building outside looks nondescript. Inside, it's spectacular. Um, the last game between an East and West German team, you know, that night the wall came down and I refereed that match, drove and watched people beating the stones and rocks out of the wall, um, which in itself. My very first trip to an Eastern Bloc country was East Germany and arriving in West Berlin, catching a taxi and then having to walk through Checkpoint Charlie. And it was almost like a James Bond film because it was evening, there was no light, you know, we're in winter. And, um, and being greeted at the other side where, where the guy said to me in perfect English, it's amazing football, Mr. Hackett. And I've gone, yeah, it's a great sport. He goes, no, a few years ago, the president of the United States, John F. Kennedy, was the other side of this bridge or this, this sort of walkway. He couldn't come into East Germany, but you can. Um, so I think go to Moscow when the war was up, going to Czechoslovakia, um, all those sort of things. And then visiting great stadiums, you know, uh, Bernabeu, refereeing on Wembley. Um, so all these things. So it's difficult to find a favourite. For an English referee, I'll tell you, that if you aspire and have dreams, refereeing at Wembley <clears throat> is the dream. And for me, to, you know, I was one of the youngest referees to referee a cup final. I was 36 and um, I didn't even realise that was in line to be selected. I'd, re I'd refereed a semi-final in 1979, Hillsborough Football Club here in Sheffield. As a boy, uh, you know, I used to walk with my dad to Hillsborough. I was a Sheffield Wednesday fan, still am. And we, we would walk the three miles to the game, call at the pub on the way, and that was, that was, if you like, every other week, a sort of tradition. And when I was refereed, uh, appointed to referee Liverpool Arsenal at Hillsborough, the semi-final, where I lived had been raised to the ground. It had all knocked down, obviously, the old terrace buildings. And, but I nonetheless, I drove my car down. My father was, had passed. I drove the car to the, where I used to live, got out of the car and walked the three miles in a blazer, jacket, kit. And as I got nearer to the ground, people are saying, Keith, what are you doing? I'm going to the game. Why are you walking? And I think they were a little bit shocked. But then I did that at the Bernabeu uh, um, some years ago when I refereed there. The hotel we were staying in was close to the Bernabeu. They got all the outriders and police and everything. And I said, OK, take my bike. I'm just going to walk to the ground. And I, I sauntered quietly through the spectators uh, and then gained entrance into the stadium. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a bit of a, a football nerd, but I also love the game. And, and to some degree, you know, I, I can remember having finished my career, very enjoyable. I became a UEFA observer uh, and a, a UEFA, uh, they, they use the word expert at that time. 
I was also the Premier League referee ambassador. So I was going around the world educating young referees, some of whom now are operating on the FIFA panel, which is just magnificent from the homes that they came from. Um, but, you know, I think that this is why when I went to the Premier League and said, look, we need to go professional, I could have ignored that. And therefore, the benefits now are that I see referees who are earning a, a, a reasonable salary um, with high demands. It's not easy. But I think it's how it's evolved. And I think that's a positive. Um, and I think that's good. I'm also critical of the fact that when they don't have good games, because, you know, this is how I used to be with Mark Plattenberg, Howard Webb and everybody else. Um, and therefore, I ex my expectation is high, as you should be as a coach yeah. or a mentor or a lecturer. But, you know, um, I suppose some of the things I've done, I'm very proud of. I mean, I, I introduced the communication kits. Those are now standard. And then some years ago, I watched the game at Old Trafford versus Tottenham Hotspur. The ball crossed the line. The referee and the assistant were not in a position to judge. And I understood the vulnerability of that. And that's when I went to the Premier League and said, look, we need goal line technology. And then work with Orkai to bring that in. Um, and so it operates really well. It operates because there's no human being involved apart from the person who switches it on and uh, ensures that it's all, all the systems are, are working. Um, sadly, I don't think we've achieved that with VAR at this moment. Well, that was actually going to be my, my next question was about VAR. Obviously, it's been introduced over the last few seasons to try and help referees. I'm guessing from your opinion there and from what I've seen on Twitter that you're not as much of a fan on it on how it's been used so far. Would you have liked a technology like that for you when you were refereeing to help you out? I think that when you introduce, first of all, I'm, I, I'm fully uh, positive about the use of technology in, in football uh, and introduced other aspects. You know, I had a system that I brought in called Prozone that gave me a, a video of the match, but also the speed profiles, the positioning, the animation, all those sort of things. So I'm, I'm very keen because one of the difficulties of, if you're managing a company and I've done that, and you're manufacturing a product, you, you can see the raw materials, you can see it pass through a factory and then you can see the finished goods and you can measure the quality one against the other. With refereeing, a lot of it is not is about perception. You know, first of all, the referee, oh, I don't like him. And I'm guilty of that as much as anyone. You know, I, I, if, if I take someone like John Moss, who I'm sure is a nice guy, he doesn't look the body shape, the athletic guy that I, I want a referee to be. And therefore, I'm, I'm conditioned to watching his performance closely. And when he makes an error, uh, the error is because he's not in the right position at the right time. His law knowledge is good. But he's, you know, the process of a referee is to see, recognize, think, and act. That's the process. If you don't see, then you've got a problem. What VAR enables the referee to support the referee to get more accurate decisions is to see when he cannot see mm. in certain aspects. So 
how are we operating VAR? And the criteria, which I think all needs to be reviewed and evolved, and it's new, and so it's evolving. I think, first of all, the weakness was the criteria was very tight, but allowed um, too much interpretation. Let me, let me give an example of that. We saw the Premier League introduce VAR. In the first year, they didn't have the pitch side monitors. <clears throat> the second year, they introduced them. They were there, by the way, they didn't use them. The second year, you had the boss of the PGML, Mike Rayleigh, saying, we're going to use these pitch side monitors sparingly. And in that second year, 380 games, they used it three times. Now, we've moved to a part, a part now where there are times when VAR doesn't come in because they're hiding behind what is clear and obvious error. What is clear and obvious to you might not be clear and obvious to me. But I think we all know what clear and obvious is. He's missed the penalty or he's, you know, he's missed a thump that the player needs yeah. a red card. Or because refereeing, a lot of decisions are subjective. So he's made a clear and obvious error. The referee goes to the screen. And in England, we know by practice and by figures that every time the referee goes to the, goal, the, the screen, he's going to give something. He goes with the VAR. Now, that's not the case in the MLS, where Howard Webb, the former Premier League and international referee, World Cup final referee, is managing those referees. He's actually made adjustments, operational adjustments, which I think are, are positive. And that is, look, referee, you go to the screen. If from the judgment you make, you don't see the clarity coming from what you see on the screen, you stick with your decision. So it's used as a tool to improve, but now here it's used as a tool to say, it, you got it wrong, it is. And, and therefore I think that um, on that area of operation, it's nothing to do technically, the, the products generally are okay, until we come to offside, where not getting into too much detail, uh, to bore your listeners, but around each goal, when goal line technology, having worked closely with it, we have seven cameras around each goal and they're operating at speeds of 500 frames per second into a computer, either end of the ground. So 14 cameras. What we see with offside decisions, and remember 500 frames, but the offside decision where we've got the point of release of the ball, the player who could be in an offside position, not committed an offence, and we're then awaiting and judging the outcome. We're operating with speeds of cameras at broadcast speeds, which are much less than 500 frames per second. So it's a little bit like taking a loaf of bread and saying, right, here's a loaf of bread with 500 slices. Here's a loaf of bread with 100 slices. And you, you, you can pick a slice up in the 500 and you've got the right picture. The one next to you gives the right picture. The name, not right picture. With, with this one, uh, with 100, 
you're reducing, if you like, your level of accuracy. And as a consequence, if, that, if there is that gap in accuracy at that end, that actually illuminates and it makes the decision of a toe offside daft, putting it bluntly, or failing for football to buy in. Now, I think at the World Cup, we're going to see an automated system which is effect what goal line technology is concerned. I hope that is used and I hope it works. And for issues that maybe we see where there's altercations on the pitch where VR can be used to pick up people, you were involved, uh, there was one game, I think it was, if we've got the research, 1990-91 season, Man United Arsenal, and there there was a brawl of players there. How did you deal with that situation and did you have to work with your assistants to pick out necessarily seeing things? No, uh, the, these incidents were very rare. Uh, and therefore, we had no protocol. There was no criteria. You did it on the day. Uh, and of course, you have no VL. So I was left with a dilemma. There, there was a 15-second blow involving 21 players. There was no real punching. There was a lot of pushing, a lot of visual and, if you like, verbal dissent. So I sat back and said, right, okay, I've got a problem here. If I send one off, I really should send 21 off based on what I'd seen. So I decided to caution, yellow card, but not to send anyone off. But then I made certain that I put in a substantial report to the Football Association. It was based on that report and then the interview in relation to the video that we then saw afterwards. And there was, I think Brian McClare was one and Erwin was the other. And clearly there was a, there was a point, McClare for sure. And I said to the FA people, he said, if you saw that, what would you have done? I said, well, that's, those are red card offences. But I didn't see them. So I don't guess as a referee. And I made that point. So what happened then was when I became the boss of the PGMOL, I tried to, to if you like, summarise and put into position. Well, before I was the boss of the PGMOL, I was involved in technical meetings and uh, I laid down the criteria, you know, after a discussion with other referees. And it's dead simple. We know that if there's a mass confrontation, the assistant close by is the first one on the scene with the referee. And he's monitoring things. He's perhaps verbally trying to stop the uh, altercations. The other guy who's maybe near the technical area can actually ensure, first of all, nobody comes on and follows him, but he then takes a monitoring view. He's actually looking for the runners. He's, is the goalkeeper, has he come the full distance, half distance to the pitch yeah. or whatever? And then we say this, the referee then takes action. So if there are any red cards, he issues the red cards. Um, and of course, just as a matter of interest, if, you, if you're going to send a red card or give a red card to the home player and the away player, uh, take my advice, you send the away player off first. That subdues the crowd. Um, 
doesn't show as though they've influenced the second yellow card, which is now the home team player. You the referee then asks, having got, issued any red cards, if there are any, he, uh, he asks his colleagues through the communication kit, are there any more reds? Um, and then he'll do the yellows and, and likewise do the same. If any of you go on YouTube <clears throat> and you look at the 1996 Carling Cup final, League Cup final between Chelsea and Arsenal, um, this was a game uh, that blew up almost on the final whistle. And then what you can see is Howard Webb's the referee with two very experienced colleagues and watch the process because that protocol that was already in place was operated by uh, by Howard Webb superbly on the day. And when you look at these in big incidents that happen and maybe sometimes decisions aren't made correctly, one opinion that's come up on Twitter quite a lot is that referees should be doing post-match interviews to maybe explain decisions. Do you think this is something that should be introduced or do you think, you know, maybe because there are some human errors, do you think that's maybe not a fair system to introduce? I, I always favour communication. Uh, but the problem is, <clears throat> often remember that controversy by a decision is uh, fuel for television, post-match programmes, phone-ins and other things. So it's not necessarily does the referee want to explain his decision, it's whether the media want him to explain his decision. <clears throat> Most referees that I've worked with are very articulate, uh, they're very capable. Um, they would need to review what particular incidents they're going to be asked about. I think generally we're not there yet, football's not there, uh, sadly. but. I think that if I look at the VAR process, which is where a lot of controversy exists at the moment, I'm quite clear, I always have been from day one, that that should operate the same way as rugby union. You know, I've, I've watched Nigel Owens, absolutely top referee. I know he's retired now. Brilliant referee. Um, look at the monitor with his two-touch judges. I can listen in to what he's saying and I can listen to the outcome. And, and for me, that's becomes part of the entertainment, part of the game, and very informative for the public. So what we've got at the moment is, haven't we? We've got the media mic'd up <clears throat> to the referee, but can't say what the referee's saying. Hopefully they have a guideline. But I think that Somehow with VAR, we've got to get classier. We've got to get, uh, we've got to, I'm not for the captains calling like you're doing cricket. Um, <clears throat> I, want, I want a system that says, right, we can reduce the time element by the very nature of having the big screen in the stadium and the open mic uh, for spectators. That's one way. I think in the review process by the referee, VAR, not the referee, I, I would like the VAR to operate um, more, more quickly. I think you'd get that if you had a panel-specific VAR. You know, in the World Cup, we, we use the World Cup as a model, 
to compare against the benchmark. Um, but what we fail to understand is that those guys who are operating VAR, they may be current referees, but they've spent weeks acclimatizing and operating and managed effectively reviewing the performances after the game. And this is what happens at a World Cup. This is what should happen with the, with, with, with the PGMOL. That is what I expected to happen. Okay. And if we go back a bit, we, I think we touched on it a little bit earlier in one of your answers is when you refereed that game between Brazil and West Germany uh, in the uh, 1988 Olympics, <clears throat> what was that encounter like for you? Because obviously it's a semi-final, it's a big game. How did you feel during that experience? What was it like? Well, first of all, I knew I was, I was fit and mobile. I knew that it could go to added time. I knew it was, um, you know, that we were in effect operating at altitude but we'd had altitude training. We knew that we'd been advised to uh, measure carefully uh, what we were doing, how we were doing from a, a movement point of view, how to conserve energy. And so I think that's how we managed to get over the problem. And so for me, walking out into a, a, a vast stadium with the Olympic torch was a great experience. And of course, teams that were very capable and contained some very skillful players. Great to referee, went to added time, went to penalty kicks, really enjoyable experience. Uh, that's really good. Um, if we go back down again, when you said you managed uh, refereed quite a lot in grassroots, there's recently, so I did my referee training last summer and have been refereeing this season at grassroots. And one of the things that they said in the training is about the number of referees and the intake is, is getting quite, uh, quite small at the moment. It's, it's shrinking. Um, what qualities do you think make a good referee and how would you perhaps persuade younger people to get into refereeing? Well, first of all, I think that the reduction in people getting in refereeing to some degree is, is the first barrier that the FA have put up. Let's, let's make it clear. When I wanted to become a referee, it cost me nothing. I had my training for free. I passed my examination for free. Yes, I had to buy my kit. Now, someone like yourself has got to pay 140-odd pounds out. It's a nonsense. Yeah. This is an absolute nonsense. It's a travesty. And, and I keep pleading with the FA to rethink that. If they say, yes, it's going to cost us, well, that's, that's being brought about by themselves. Because a lot of the training and development of referees was done by the Referees Association for nothing. So I think that the FA have got to look at themselves and address this problem because this is a problem. You know, I'm president of the Northern Counties East League, uh, step five, six. And sometimes, you know, this is a high level of football. And, and we're, we're struggling on a Friday to get referees. We have a guy who does it and been doing it for a long time. And uh, it's fantastic. But they overcome the problem each week. But, you know, I see a lot of games going without referees. So I think that's the first thing. I think any, any university student is a target for me because it's an opportunity to earn some money. Um, and... Uh, this is why I, I you know, I, I very much like either universities to subsidise the referees if the FA are insisting 
that they're going to charge referees to become match officials. They've got to find a way around that. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's no different to someone wanting to go to university and, and perhaps some years down the line paying for their for their training. Perhaps some years down the line when they become professional referees, they can pay for their training. Um, so I, I think there are, there are ways to, to combat that. For me, anybody can be a referee because I think the benefits are enormous. Health is for sure. I, I'm not surprised that a lot, a lot of referees grow in their own businesses and grow in, in uh, companies because you know, they're learning communication skills. They're, le they're learning people skills, how to manage, how to actually take a set of criteria, which is the laws of the game, and apply them. And so for me, I think it's, I think that when I look at lots of referees, either, you know, okay, they're, they're different professions, but they become pretty successful in their own careers because of, because of referee. Now there's a pathway. The pathway to the top is a long-winded one, uh, but nonetheless, you can make it to the SG1 or SG2, the professional end of the, of the game, and that brings enormous benefits financially and, and, and a career. Um, for me, as an active referee, I travel to 35 countries, uh, <clears throat> Eastern Bloc and around the world. And then when I became the Premier League referee, if you like, uh, ambassador, uh, educating and running workshops, refereeing workshops around the world, that meant I added to that. So at this moment in time, I've been to about 100 countries involving in, and I wouldn't have gone there because of, but purely because of refereeing. Mm -hmm. So um, doesn't matter what gender, um, you know, I think, I think, I think that there's an openness, there's an ability. I think you've got to have patience. And it's a little bit like uh, an engine. If you put it in, you might get the outcome in terms of, of, of promotion and the like. So it is about effort. It is about concentration. It's also about listening. And, and you know, this week I had a young referee come on it. And, and sort of explain similar to you that um, you know it's new in it relatively new in refereeing advancing his career um, could I give him any form of assistance he'd be grateful and he got thumped by a, with about eight or nine presentations I've said to him absorb them slowly but this is what I want young referees to do I want to realize that for them to realize it's not easy, that they will get criticized. Don't take it personally. Um, it's difficult. It's much more difficult now to become a referee, uh, to referee because, you know, I, I referee matches and nobody there. You know, my concern is who's going to pay me my fee, <laughs> you know, at times. But now what we've got is we get parents who, are a nightmare sometimes, you know? And that is up to the clubs. I mean, I'm sort of saying that every club should have a referee ambassador and that referee ambassador should greet the young referee, if you like, 
support him whilst he's in that particular stadium or ground or whatever, park, and then make certain he returns to his vehicle or exits the ground safely. And that if there are any conflicting issues, it, it can get support from that individual guidance. So I'm very much for that. Um, but but I, I think that um, there's so much enjoyment that you can get from refereeing. Um, I mean, I look back and as a guy who didn't aspire to become anything in refereeing, uh, I managed to get to the top. And I think that is open to everybody. It's, it's a really great in- industry, obviously. Just for young people, obviously, if you don't want to play anymore, you can you can get another side to the game that you can get involved in. And as you've said, the sky's kind of the limit from from where it can go. Keith, it's been really great talking to you today. Um, I've really enjoyed listening to all your st- stories, and I'm sure everyone else listening has as well. If you have enjoyed listening to this, make sure to follow us either on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or if you're watching this on YouTube, make sure to subscribe to us on there. Thank you very much for listening. That was The Final Whistle.